Welcome to Stacy on the Right with your host, Stacy Washington. But I just think it shows you that, that, that Donald Trump really hasn't changed right. in 20 years. What he believed then, he believes now, and he's not going not gonna to change his mind. So when he says he's been preparing for this uh, his entire life, I mean, it may be partially true, even though he didn't expect to be president of the United States at that at that particular point, which may be why he says he doesn't he didn't need to um, prep. Right. And what certainly hasn't changed is his own self-regard, Trump's regard for himself as this incredible negotiator, this very adept businessman. Uh, he's thought of himself in that way for many, many years. Yeah, no and situ- certainly uh, his ego is no smaller today than it was <laughs> right. two decades there's ago. There's no situation in which he wouldn't say he was perfectly prepared all his life, right. no matter what. Negotiation. His self-confidence clearly has not changed either. Are we really going to know what occurred in this meeting? Back to your mm-hmm. back to your earlier point, which Sam was talking about. I mean, these two men uh, neither one is known for their veracity, let me put it that way. So you have Donald Trump and, and you have Kim Jong-un coming out of this meeting. They may very well be telling different stories. We then know that Pompeo will be meeting and has been meeting. So are we going to have to wait to hear from the Secretary of State? But he wasn't there. So for history's sake, we really have no record of this historic meeting. Wow. So welcome to Stacy on the Right here on Urban Family Talk and American Family Radio. Wowza, wowza, wowza. I, I'm always a, a little teensy bit surprised when I hear people making all these statements about the way other people think about themselves. Now, obviously, we can ascertain a ton on people's behaviors. We can observe them. But you can never truly know the inside of a person, what they're thinking about themselves Unless they tell you and you can trust that they're being completely candid with you because they know you and they trust you. What I know is that most of the time for me, I'm whatever you see on the outside is actually probably the opposite of what's going on on the inside. When people think I'm the most confident and I'm doing the most fantastic, uh, I don't feel like it's going well at all. I do think the president has an extraordinary level of confidence in his abilities, but that comes with age and experience. And when I hear people denigrating men in leadership for their self-confidence, what I really hear as an undertone of that is that they don't understand masculinity. And that's kind of a crisis in our country right now, the misunderstanding of masculinity, the, uh, the attempt to demonize it and makes it label it as toxic to characterize men in ways that are negative because they're men and they're exercising and operating within their gifts and talents in the way that God made them. And so it's, it's just interesting. Uh, so anyway, that, that's, that's a good little foray into the beginning of the show. Welcome in to Stacey on the Right here on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. We are so glad to be with you today. We have a, just another really fantastic lineup for you. Uh, that was CNN's Gloria Borger to Wolf Blitzer, and they were on a panel, uh, and they were talking about this this interview that happened 19 years ago uh, with Donald Trump, then a private citizen, and he was being interviewed on CNN by Wolf Blitzer, who, oddly enough, is also the person that Gloria Borger, Borger was speaking with, Wolf Blitzer, so t- almost 20 years ago. 
And he was saying a lot of the same things that he's saying now, which means that these aren't new ideas for him, which is infuriating to liberals because they want to paint the president as being unprepared. Uh, We're going to listen to the president's uh, audio of him talking in an interview about losing $500 billion to China and trade. And when we listen to that, I'd like you to, to listen for an emotional quality to the way he's describing the amount of money that America is losing and picture that same type of fervor for someone protecting something that it belongs to them and they're really invested in. And because I, I, I think if we could just step back for a second and whatever it is that we don't like about President Trump, take a moment to understand where he's coming from and that he's actually losing money being the president. He's losing not just stature and reputation, but actual wealth he's losing by being president of the United States, then you have to kind of think, well, what is driving him to do this job? Why wouldn't he just look at his balance sheet year over year and say, uh, I've lost nearly a billion dollars in wealth or just over a billion dollars in wealth. Uh, This isn't a winning proposition for me. If I keep going in this way, I'll be less than a billionaire at the end of my presidency. What's the motivator for me to continue to do this? I already own mansions. I already own private planes, helicopters, jets. I already own all the stuff. I already have teams of security. I already have, you know, thousands of employees across the country. I don't actually need this to stroke my ego or to give me stature. So why would I continue to do this job? If you look at it from that perspective, most presidents come into the, into the Oval Office with a certain level of wealth. Bill Clinton had a wealth of 500000 He left. He's you know, left multimillionaire. He's now worth 240 some odd million dollars. Um, Barack Obama came in. He was worth about 3 million. He's now worth 41 million uh, and, and climbing. And President Trump came in. He was 4.5 billion, I believe. That was the last count just before he started the campaign. Now he's worth just a hair over 3 billion. So, He's he's in the losing proposition. So we're also going to have two great interviews today. Diego Echeverry is a director of coalitions for Concerned Veterans for America. And I'm so excited about speaking with Diego about what the Mission Act actually does and giving some information on that as a veteran, fourth generation veteran, um, married to a veteran and many other veterans in our family. I really want to uh, have as, as something that we're doing on the show more often highlighting what we can do to help veterans reacclimate themselves back into the private sector and also programs that either help or hinder their progress in doing so. Uh, you know, we, we have a debt that we owe to people that go over and leave their limbs in the sand, you know, in the Middle East or in Bosnia and Herzegovina and, and all of the different conflicts that we've been involved in. And I don't think America does a good job of taking care of people once they get back home. For people like me, who I, I wasn't injured on active duty, and I was pr- pretty pretty healthy leaving out when I did my exit interview and my exit uh, medical assessment, I'm, I was healthy. But for a lot of veterans, they're not. So we're going to uh, talk to Diego about that. And then in hour two, you know, we we're talking about racism and white supremacy and what it is and what it isn't. We're going to interview Arno Michaelis. He's a former white, white supremacist and the co-author of The Gift of Our Wounds. Notice I said former. So he's going to come on here and I'm going to get to ask him whatever I want about him. He was a white supremacist, someone who believed in the superiority of the white race at the expense of others. So we're going to talk to him. We're going to dip in and out of Jim Acosta's horrible behavior at the uh, summit. He was overseas. He had an opportunity to represent CNN. Well, he did not. And um, 
others um, uh, as well. We're going to, we're going to, and we'll take your calls as well. 866-963-2037. StacyOnTheRight.com is a website where you can subscribe. And thanks for being here today. And everyone uh, from all over, and then especially the listeners, listeners who are on terrestrial radio. Thanks for being here. So now we have President Trump, and he's talking about losing $500 billion to China on trade. And remember, we're listening for the motive for someone who is already a multi-billionaire and extraordinarily successful, has grandkids, has uh, one young child at home still, is wealthy and can make the decision to live however he wants, wherever he wants, doing, you know, what, what, whatever. He's, he's really, he's, the options for him are limitless. He chooses instead to lose his, his stature and his reputation to run for pre- the president of the United States. And while this makes him much more powerful than he was in the private sector, it comes along with attendant circumstances that are not beneficial to a person who's used to moving freely about the country unimpeded, as well as his wife and extended family. So they've all suffered in the proposition. Why would he do it? It's number two. No, I felt very good at the beginning. And we, you know, I talked about we have to denuke. This country has to be denuked. And he understood that. He fully understood it. He didn't fight it. And we're doing some great things. And for his country and South Korea is going to be involved very much in helping. And Japan is going to be involved. And uh, President Xi of China has been, uh, you know, really terrific on the border. I think less so the last couple of months, unfortunately. Was that a big part? Because your meetings, when you met with the president of China, were scheduled, if I recall, for like 15 minutes. Didn't some go on for four hours? That's right. Well, we actually met at Mar-a-Lago. He wanted to be at Mar-a-Lago. And we had a 15-minute meeting scheduled. When he comes in, we were going to go into breakout rooms where we had many people waiting for us. And it ended up lasting four hours. The 15 minutes, president of China, Mm -hmm. great guy. It ended up lasting for four hours. We just got along, and yeah. we have gotten along. I mean, I want them to treat us better on trade. That's my only problem. You know, they've Is been it killing us. Didn't they make concessions on intellectual property? Well, they trade. want to do things. It's, it's a tough thing. You know, they, they're doing so well. They've made so much progress against us for so many years. It's awfully tough for them to bring it back. And uh, we'll see how that all works out. We're going to we're going to do something. Definitely, we're going to do something. You know, they offered us 80 billion dollars in purchases of uh, agricultural products, right. but it's just not enough for what we're talking about. It's 80 billion. What do you I want? never thought I'd turn down 80 billion dollars, but mm-hmm. we have to do something with intellectual property. We have to do something just generally on trade. Last year, we lost 500 billion dollars with China. We can't do that anymore. Mm. So the president is really stressing how important it is to him that America is treated fairly on trade. And for a nation like China, which they have benefited so greatly from the relationship, doing business with us has been just a buffet of awesomeness for them. They've not only been able to poach our intellectual property to create products to sell within their own markets and in, in, in Asia, they have been able to just by osmosis, by having our factories there, by seeing how we set up a factory, how we um, engage with employees, even though their employees are working for a pittance compared to what Americans would work for, to see the management structures. They've gotten to interface with some of the brightest minds our country has on not just their products, but other business interests. And they've done all of this while maintaining their communist stranglehold on their billion citizens, but advancing the cause of catching up to America. You know, they have the 2036 initiative where by the year 2036, they expect to replace us as the number one economy on the planet and vie for 
the reserve currency of nations to no longer be the U.S. dollar, but to be their instrument, their, their, their uh, monetary instrument. Why is that important to us? Well, being the reserve currency means the default language that's spoken in business is English. Yes, a lot of our, our, our business people speak multiple languages. It's not that you're required to speak English, but it's kind of the default. English is the additional language that most nations have their children learn as they're growing up because they assume that the world that we live in is one where English speakers dominate the landscape. With a rising China, that also would change. So it's not about saying that China's society is not as good as ours or that we don't want the Chinese people to rise up and do well. They're already doing that. But what we are saying is that a world that the reserve currency, in which the reserve currency is someone who is a communist nation is going to be different than one where it's a capitalistic nation that's based on freedom and liberty for everyone, but specifically for the citizens of that country. This is something that has been allowed to happen and progress over all of the previous presidencies up until Donald Trump. And so, you know, there's, there's this, this big, this, it's a conversation that I keep hearing. People keep coming back to it. People that didn't care that Bill Clinton did the things that he did when he was president. People that actually think pornography is just like regular television. People who think that, you know, nudity and all of that stuff, they're against the swimsuit competition at uh, Miss America, but they're fine with nudity on television, same-sex relationships promoted as the norm, and the advancement of the transgender, uh, you know, kind of, it's a movement. They're fine with all of that, but they're not okay with just this, this is a flawed person. Donald Trump made mistakes. (laughs) They were fine watching him on TV. They knew he'd been married multiple times and had had affairs when he was on TV. But now that he's the president, all of a sudden there's this new morality that people are trying to drape themselves in. And it just isn't flying. It's not, it it doesn't work. If you only have morality and shock and disgust for people who make mistakes and are flawed individuals when they're on the right, but when they're on the left, their sins are justified and instantly forgiven, then don't be surprised when people stop paying attention to your criticisms and critiques. And that's what's happening, really. Um, So when we get back, we're going to have our first guest for you on the program. Wonderful to speak to Diego Echeverry right after this. my favorite things to do in Israel is take a boat ride on the Sea of Galilee. Hello everyone, I'm Tim Wildman, President of American Family Association and American Family Radio. We'll be taking our annual tour of Israel in March of 2019, but it's time to sign up. We have a lot of folks sign up early, and last year, in fact, we filled up several months in advance. So for all the information on this trip to Israel, a bucket list trip for most people, 
go to the website twholyland.com. That's twholyland.com. Or for a free brochure, call us at 800-FAMILIES, 800-F-A-M-I-L-I-E-S, option 5, and leave us your name and your phone number. We'll be flying direct from the States to Tel Aviv and then begin our tour in Jerusalem of Israel. We hope you can join us in 2019. Hi, I'm Crawford Loritz with a Legacy Moment. Some years ago, Karen and I went through a time of discouragement. It was a stretch in our lives where we really needed the love and encouragement of trusted friends, and God in His grace gave us what we needed. A pastor friend and his dear wife came alongside us and gave us a listening ear. They showered us with encouragement and love. Then in recent years, God gave us the joy and privilege of ministering to that very couple and encouraging them in their time of need. We will never forget what they did for us. In 2 Samuel chapter 19, David models for us what we ought to do for those who have helped us in the past. David and his men were in the wilderness running from his son Absalom. While he was out there in the wilderness, an 80-year-old man by the name of Barzillai came alongside and brought them supplies and gave them refreshment and much-needed encouragement. Now David was back in Jerusalem and things were simmering down. Listen to what David did. Verse 39. All the people crossed over to Jordan and the king crossed too. The king then kissed Barzillai and blessed him and he returned to his place. There are some things we need to keep in mind based on this encounter. Number one, Honor those who have helped you, especially the elderly. Number two, do all that you can to show your appreciation. Please say thank you to people. Then number three, you will need help in the future. Don't forget about those who have helped you in the past. You might need those same folks tomorrow. Well, here's what I want you to remember today. Remember those who have been a blessing in your life. Find out how you can bless and encourage them. You will reap a harvest of joy. Crawford Loritz is senior pastor of Fellowship Bible Church in suburban Atlanta, Georgia. For more information, go to livingalegacy.org, livingalegacy.org. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on Urban Family Talk. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Thanks for being here today. Uh, is it Wednesday? Oh, it is. Happy hump day. <laughs> Middle of the week. Ready to get it done. <laughs> it's my pleasure to welcome Diego Echeberry, Director of Coalitions for Concerned Veterans for America. Hey, Diego, thanks for joining in today. Happy hump day. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, so first off, you are a good friend of associate producer of the Stacey on the Right Show, Demetrius Minor, who books all the guests and booked you. And he was just texting me saying, he's my friend and colleague. And I'm like, yes, I'm, I, you know, he, he brings us really wonderful guests. I'm so excited about getting to talk to you about the Mission Act today. Well, uh, thanks to Demetrius. He's, uh, he's a great colleague and happy to be on the same team as him. Uh, and thank you so much for having me on to talk about the Mission Act, uh, H.R. 5674, which was signed by the president uh, last week. It was uh, an exciting uh, piece of news for, for us at CBA who have been fighting this fight for uh, several years now, since uh, 2012, um, since the initial funding of, of the Veterans Choice Program was deployed last year, uh, Congress has twice authorized supplemental funding, uh, and it failed to make significant reforms to the VA healthcare choice. Um, and uh, by the end of last month, the funding for for the Veterans Choice Program was was due to run out. So, 
the fact that Congress moved so quickly on the Mission Act uh, to pass it through Congress and the Senate. Uh, the Senate had, I, I believe, there were only five no votes against it, uh, all Democrats. Uh, and in the and in the House, there were about seventy no votes. Uh, but there there were there was bipartisan support uh, in the House and in the Senate for this for this bill. So we're really excited that. Uh, the president signed it so quickly uh, to make sure that uh, we were able to overhaul, expand, and permanently reform the Veterans Choice Program so that veterans get uh, a better choice uh, in their health care decision. So uh, a couple of the things that the bill does, and it, it's um, has it's kind of expansive. It, it greatly enlarges the VA Family Caregiver Program. It establishes the Center for Innovation for Care and Payment and the Asset and Infrastructure Review Commission. Uh, can you give us some kind of layman's explanations on exactly why you supported the bill and why you're so excited that it's now law? Sure. So I'll, I'll dumb it down. Essentially what uh, this bill does, it's an amalgamation of several different bills that, that we supported. Uh, and, it, and it was a compromise also to include uh, other bills like expanding community care. But essentially what uh, C- what this bill does and what CBA supports in this bill uh, is that it makes permanent the the, C- the VA Choice Program. After the 2012 VA scandal uh, in Phoenix, where hundreds of veterans died while waiting for care, this, this new program called the Veterans Choice Program was created. Now, that, that program kept running out of money. And in fact, in the last couple of years, it ran out of money twice. And as I mentioned, there had to be an emergency funding for, for, for the program. This bill makes the choice program permanent. And why is a choice program good or why is it necessary? Because many veterans were dying while waiting for care because the choice program um, uh, also was running out of funding. So this bill fixed that. Uh, at the VA, as you know, there's for, for many years there's been problems with delayed care, uh, with access to care, uh, secret wait lists, um, and, and this is still occurring even even today after the scandals. So the CHOICE program allows veterans to seek care outside of the VA. They can go to a private health care provider to meet their needs. Many veterans have to make appointments that are outside of their geographic area, and that's an undue hardship for many people who are settling down, who are trying to uh, keep down a steady job, who are going to school and getting their lives together after their military service. So the CHOICE program allowed veterans to seek access uh, to care in their community, which, which we really support. So that's the biggest thing with the Mission Act and why it was so su- why we were so supportive of it and, and why, believe, why we believe in it so strongly is that veterans deserve access to community care, to private health care, um, because the government health care has failed us uh, time and time again. So when the you say they... We, go ahead. When you say they had deserve access to it, I'm... Um, so I'm, I'm a veteran. My husband and I are veterans, and we made a conscious decision not to access the vet, the VA medical system when we left active duty. We had medical insurance through work, so we didn't ever, you know, seek out those benefits or, or try to use them. We we weren't retirees; we were veterans, just you know, plain old veterans. So, for people who are leaving the service and separating, and they either don't have access to healthcare through their new job or they're unemployed or what have you, what you're saying is that veterans' medical insurance that's provided to them through the VA is now expanded and goes out into the private sector, so they'll be able to behave, as my husband and I did, only using private doctors, but they're doing so as a benefit that they're receiving from, you know, as a, from being on active duty. Okay, so, so not entirely. Uh, it's only for those veterans who already qualify. 
for d- depending on their disability status. And as you know, not every veteran is disabled. Not every veteran uh, is qualified uh, to go to the VA for every service. Uh, it, it depends on your disability rating and what you're going there for. Uh, but uh, if, I get I, I guess the, the crux of your question is. Uh, do veterans now have better access to outside care than at the VA as an option? And that's yes. The answer to that is yes. Veterans will now have better access to care outside those who qualify for, for VA benefits. And for, for those who retired, you know, depending on, on whether or not their fellow retirees choose uh, tri- TRICARE Prime, some of them stay on TRICARE. Um, uh, for, for those uh, who decide to, to do a patchwork of uh, uh, healthcare of using private side and the VA side. What we're seeing too is that there's a lot of veterans. For example, in my home state of Florida, we have 600 or 700,000 veterans who use a combination of private healthcare and the VA. And then there's uh, a similar number, about less than 600,000, that use uh, a combination of Medicaid, Medicare, and the VA. So regardless of where you're at, the great majority of veterans use a combination already of private and public health care. A big reason for that is because the VA is inadequate in, in meeting the needs of today's veterans. And what we're so scared about, myself as a post-9-11 veteran uh, and the other folks on our team who are post-9-11 veterans, is that the VA right now was built for yesterday's veterans, not for today's and tomorrow's veterans. So what we need is more legislation like the VA Mission Act that will be able to be forward-thinking and uh, have a VA that will better be able to meet the needs of tomorrow's veterans and today's veterans, the post-9-11 veterans. And that's why we also support legislation like the Veterans Empowerment Act, which from the get-go provides access to choice and portability of, of health care. The VEA is, is the bill, in short, uh, the Veteran Empowerment Act. Uh, it was sponsored by Doug Lamborn out of Colorado. It was introduced in November. It just hasn't moved anywhere. But what that does is two main things. It takes the DHA, which is a hospital system, out from under the VA and turns it to a government-chartered nonprofit that would have oversight from both sides of the aisle, and the VA director would sit on that board. So you have continuity and leadership, continuity and vision, which has been a big problem. The average VA director only lasts 1.7 years. So that's not enough time to really oversee a 300-plus thousand person organization with a budget of $200 billion, you know, no one can adequately follow through on a vision to reform an, an organization like that. So that's why a board is so, is so necessary to have. The other thing that the VEA does, the Veteran Empowerment Act does, is it creates something called the Veterans Health Insurance Program. So that's from the get-go. A veteran would be able to use their insurance card. The system would be modeled on TRICARE Prime, and a veteran would be able to go to any private health care provider they choose, and it would force the VA to compete for patients uh, with the private sector. It would, it would cause the VA to really step up their game. They're focused on the veteran as a customer. They're focused on the veteran as a patient instead of what we've seen for the last many, many years, which is that the VA is focused on the VA employee, the unions. The unions have a stranglehold on the VA, and they've been the biggest impediment to reform and, and to fixing the VA healthcare system. Wow. So I, I hadn't realized that the uh, turnover for the, the leadership of the VA was, I mean, obviously you remember every time one of them steps down or is replaced, but that's actually really frequent. Less than two years per person is more frequent than probably any position that we have in government for a normal rotation of leadership. Absolutely. It's scary. You know, when, when you think about the fact that in the last 10 years, that's, that's typically what they average. 
and and that includes those who were temporary people who were overseeing um, uh, in in the in the meantime while other people were appointed. But but regardless, I mean that's it's a staggering statistic. It is. Uh, so what can, so you, you talked about this being a first step. You want to see more legislation that helps veterans. What else are you looking for the president? And obviously Congress has to pass the legislation for him to sign it. What are you looking for them to do? Well, we're looking for people to go to our website, cb4a.org. They can learn more. They can sign up to get emails. What we need is to put pressure on members of Congress to support legislation that fixes the VA, like the Veteran Empowerment Act. The VA Mission Act is 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 in our is not still in our rearview mirror because right now we're worried about the implementation side. Yeah. But the bill didn't include specific funding in it, so we need to hold our legislators accountable on the Mission Act to make sure that they uh, put it into work the right way. So, uh, what what does that mean? Folks need to put pressure on their member of Congress to support implementation of the Mission Act. Um, and then in the future, the VEA is, is our long-term goal to get something passed like that where we have the Veterans Health Insurance Program, the VHA, turns into a government-chartered nonprofit. There's also legislation like the Vet Protection Act. Uh, what we found recently, the, G, the, the, the GAO report um, that exposed that over 300 employees at the VA were devoting 100% of their time to union activity. That included nurses and physicians. There was a physician that was paid over $200,000 a year. And in that year, they did nothing but union activities. They didn't see a single patient. So we think that that's a major conflict. And we think that that's an issue that we're using taxpayer dollars to bankroll unions when these physicians and nurses and uh, healthcare practitioners should be seeing patients, should be seeing veterans. So what the Vet Protection Act does is it caps that amount of uh, official time that they can devote to union activities to 25%. The other thing that it does is it bars clinicians from participating in union activities on official time. And we think that this is a totally reasonable argument because nowhere else in government and nowhere else in, in, in a job market, in the job market, are people allowed to, to, to participate in extracurriculars like, like this, like union activities. So we hope that... Um, Folks will sign on to the, the Vet Protection Act. That your listeners, your callers, your listeners and callers will um, reach out to their members of Congress and ask them to support the Vet Protection Act to sign on as a co-sponsor of that bill, so that we can get this very reasonable uh, legislation passed and and some and further reforms to fix the VA. Wow. I have no words for how wrong it is to hear that someone who's been trained as a medical professional a nurse, a doctor spends a hundred percent of their time doing union stuff and not seeing patients. Meanwhile, people are dying, waiting on an appointment. It's, it's, it's like a horrible movie that you watch where you're outraged, but at the end of the movie, you get, you know, you kind of get to calm down and say, but we know that's not true. That's just a movie. Only this is true. It's real. It's happening. And our government is allowing it. So, you know, I'm just really grateful that you've been able to get this far and the next step, we, we definitely need to take that. Give the information again so people can find out more about how they can help and add their voices. They can go to cv4a.org, which is our website, Concerned Veterans for America, cv4a.org, and they can click on any of the tabs that talk about policy, and they can learn more. They can sign up to volunteer for us, uh, and they can also reach out to their members of Congress to support the legislation I mentioned. So cv4a.org. Mm. 
Mm-mm-mm. All right. I had someone in the um, the chat ask, uh, why can't we just give vets a medical card that gives them service everywhere and disband the VA? And I said, because that makes too much sense. <laughs> so, Well, I, I do want to say we're not for disbanding the VA because we know that many veterans get quality care. It's just not consistent across the board. And there are veterans, many veterans and military family members that work at the VA. And we know that their hearts are in the right place and that many veterans do get excellent quality. The problem isn't those patients and those employees. It's the bad employees that are the problem that are making it very, very difficult for, for uh, the cream to rise to the top, so to say. Uh, and and many, there's many bad apples at the VA, and we need to fix it. And that's why you know, CVA, I'm really proud to be part of this organization because we've been so successful in advocating for many pieces of legislation in the, several, in the last several years. The VA Accountability Act, the VA Accountability and Whistleblower Protection Act were both signed by, by the presidents, and, uh, and they passed Congress, and, and these have slowly reformed. And that's what we're all about. We're about incremental change because we know that, that there are a lot of interested parties here. Uh, and what we don't want to do is completely dismantle the VA because they have a comparative advantage in several areas. They have many, many years and decades of experience treating veterans. But we just want them to refocus their attention on the veteran instead of the, the VA employee. And we think that that can be done by working with, with folks on both sides of the aisle to make sure that we refocus their attention on the veteran as the patient, as the customer. Uh, and we're seeing all of those things happen thanks to uh, President Trump's leadership, thanks to the House and the Senate, um, the leaders in both the Senate VA committee and the House VA committee, we're seeing all the red steps happen. More reform on the VA has happened in the last couple of years than it happened in the last two generations combined. So, or rather, last two presidents combined. So, we're very, very excited. Mm. And I am too. And I really appreciate the work that you guys are doing. It's um, cv4a.org, Concerned Veterans for America. Thank you so much for coming on today, Diego, and and what you're doing um, to help veterans get access to medical care. Thank you so much. All right. Great to talk to you. Uh, So we we have just a wonderful continuation of and more information. I'll give you a little preview for next segment. We have Mitch McConnell talking about the possibility of this uh, agreement, if you will. Now, we know that the piece of paper that they signed was more symbolic than actual having teeth. And we know this because anything that's a treaty has to be ratified by Congress. So that was just a first step for them. And I think it was great to see Kim Jong-un and the president actually symbolically joining together to sign that piece of paper that kind of lays out what they hope to do. We'll talk about that and we'll take your calls. 866-963-2037. Stay there. One of the first steps to becoming a Christian is recognizing our sinful nature. What makes this so difficult is that we have selective vision when it comes to our own issues. It's easy for me to see your faults, but when it comes to seeing my own, then my eyesight automatically gets bad. 
Once you're far away, to measure new birth in Christ is by opened eyes and a clear vision. Sometimes we can pass between having sight and having no sight because we have fallen asleep to the needs around us, or our perspective on those things that are eternal is distorted. Whatever the case, there is nothing more dangerous than having blurred vision and still thinking that it's clear. Don't measure your vision by your own standards. It will be warped and distorted every time, but rather measure it by God's standards. God desires that our eyesight remains clear. So how is your eyesight today? With the heart for the Urban Family, I'm today's Urban Woman, Tony Johnson. Connect with us at UrbanFamilyTalk.com. Listen to Stacy on the Right with Stacy Washington on Urban Family Talk. She's sharp. I mean, did you hear that? Pointed. Remember that you're not only a Christian on Sunday. And insightful. Deception and lies have been accepted as the norm from the Democrats. But most of all, she's on the right. That scripture from the Bible that says the heart of the fool inclines to the left just kept popping into my mind. Stacy on the Right. Now heard weekday afternoons from 2 to 4 Central on Urban Family Talk. Family is an institution set forth by God, one man and one woman for life, with the outflow being children produced by that union. It's obvious to all that there is an attack on the family in our country, and especially on fathers. Whether it's the cycle of sin that persists in our families or the pressure from our government to exclude men from being intimately involved, the strategic battle is on for the souls of men. Join us in the battle to strengthen fatherhood, urbanfamilytalk.com. Hi, I'm Will Addison. And I'm Miki Addison of Aaron the Addisons on Urban Family Talk. Family is so important to everything. I mean, think about it. Right after God created Adam, he made family by creating Eve as his wife. We'd like to invite you to the Marriage, Family, and Life Conference this summer. We'll have a full slate of experts to help encourage and equip the body of Christ to fight for the restoration of the family. Our speakers include Ryan Baumberger of the Radiance Foundation, Dr. Clarence Schuler of Building Lasting Relationships, Abraham Hamilton III, Pastor Bert Harper and his wife Jan, and more. We'll even be there. The Marriage, Family, and Life Conference will be Friday and Saturday, August 17th and 18th at Hope Church in Tupelo, Mississippi. Come help us fight back against the enemy's direct attack on marriage and family. That's the Marriage, Family, and Life Conference put on by Urban Family Communications, a division of the American Family Association. You can learn more and register at urbanfamilytalk.com. This is Stacy on the Right on Urban Family Talk. What sort of structure do you think would be appropriate for the Senate or both bodies of Congress to adjudicate, have some sort of levers like we had with the Iran deal, to make sure that these terms of this tentative agreement are enforced. What does that look like? Yeah, well, I think there'd be widespread interest in Congress for having an involvement in this. If the president can reach a significant agreement with the North Koreans, I hope it takes the form of a treaty. That's what the founders of our country anticipated, and that's why it's in the Constitution. We obviously have precedent for things less than that, uh, but which route the administration takes will be up to them, but I do believe they'll need to come to Congress in some form, and we'll wait and see what form that takes. So that's the standard procedure. I'm glad he came out and shared it, but there's nothing unusual about the president going out and creating a new diplomatic environment in which to come to a place where they can build a treaty that would then 
have to be ratified in Congress before it could be signed into law by the president. So in other words, business as usual, instead of President Trump trying to take the pen and phone route as President Obama did and say, well, you know, I guess I'm going to go ahead and create a relationship with these people, drop some paperwork and some documents and get South Korean leaders to sign it and we sign it and North Korean leaders to sign it. And then I use an executive order to place it into what I would consider to be operation. That's what President Obama did with the Iran deal. And now we're finding out that he actually asked banking institutions here in the United States to circumvent the sanctions that were in place in order to convert money that was going to be sent to the Iranians into currency that they could use. And when they refused, he just got a pallet of cash and sent it to Switzerland and had them convert it and then flew the pallet to Iran. I mean, if that's not some, I, I'm, I'm going to save my characterizations for my private time because I think maybe not suitable for here. Not profane, but not suitable for here. All right, I want to talk to you about uh, one of the ballot initiatives that just passed and will be available for Californians to vote on. And it's... Uh, something that will split the state of California into three individual states, one of which would be, uh, it'd be, it would be a Republican state. So the Republicans in the state of California won out. The Democrats love the idea because if California is split into three states, it's our number one most populous state. If it were split, then you'd have an additional four senators because right now they only have two. Each state has two senators. They'd actually have six. And they would double the number of liberal senators because two of the new states would be heavily populated by Democratic strongholds in big cities. So you'd have four senators for the Democrats and then two new ones for the Republicans. But there are a number of really thorny issues that come alongside trying to split California up. Now, California has been a state for 168 years and... The majority of the voters uh, who have the opportunity to cast a ballot could change the makeup of the state. So it's uh, it would be, if it happens, the first division of an existing U.S. state since the creation of West Virginia in 1863. And this is an interesting proposal. Um, I'll put the link in, in online so you guys can find it. If you're interested in seeing what it looks like, basically Northern California, which includes Sacramento and uh, San Francisco, that would be one chunk. That'd be one state. And then just below that, the city of Monterey and down the coast, that would be one skinny sliver of land that was basically all, all coastal. That would be the second state. And it would actually retain the name California. It would go from Monterey to Los Angeles. Uh, So Northern California would be the first new state that I described to you that includes Sacramento and and San Francisco. The second state, which would be the original name, California, would encompass from Monterey all the way down the coast to Los Angeles. And then if you continue on down the coast, you hit San Diego, then the remainder of the state that's left behind that, which you can kind of see here if you're if you're watching on one of the live streams and you can find this at at L.A. Times Graphics. On Twitter, if you go there, you'll see this graphic as well. And that third portion would be called Southern California, and it would include Fresno, Bakersfield, Riverside, and San Diego. So these three states, according to Tim Draper, the Silicon Valley venture capitalist who sponsored the ballot measure, 
would give them better infrastructure, better education, and lower taxes. Now, when he formally submitted the proposal, it was last summer, and uh, he was talking about it then and saying that states would be more accountable to us and could cooperate and compete for citizens. And he argued that vast parts of California are poorly served by representative government dominated by a large number of elected representatives from a small part of our state, both geographically and economically. The proposal also aims to invoke Article 4, Section 3 of the U.S. Constitution, which is a provision that guides how an existing state can be divided into new states. Draper's plan calls for the three entities that I described, and it would divide the population of the existing state into thirds. Northern California would actually have 40 counties stretching from Oregon South to Santa Cruz County, then East to Merced um, and Maricopa counties. Southern California would begin with Madeira County in the Central Valley and wind its way along the existing state's eastern and southern spine, comprising 12 counties and ultimately curving up the Pacific coast to grab San Diego and Orange counties. Now, Los Angeles County would anchor the six counties that retain the name California under the long shot proposal. And so I described to you what that looks like. Now, it's economic sustainability that helped fell two of his previous efforts. So this isn't Draper's first time proposing this. He actually brought it up in 2012 and again in 2014. And in those iterations of his proposal, he wanted to create six California states. Now, critics of those proposals said that the more rural regions would suffer from extraordinary rates of poverty as individual states, while coastal communities flourished in new smaller states where the lion's share of California's tax revenue would be generated. (laughs) Yeah, it's always about that tax revenue. So it was a fumble by Draper's political team that doomed the six-state effort. The campaign collected hundreds of thousands of signatures in 2014, only to see too many of them invalidated by election officials. Now, last September, he submitted the modified version that he calls Cal 3. And in that one, he basically... uh, he has the signatures that he needs, which is um, the 402,468 of them. That, and out of all of the ones that were counted, that, that number represents the ones that were valid. And there are more than enough of them to be included on the November ballot. Now, there are 16, possibly more, propositions that will also be under consideration for the deadline of certification for later this month. Draper has spent... At, at you know, at last count, four point nine million dollars of his own money on the unsuccessful signature drive in twenty fourteen, he only spent only five hundred and fifty nine thousand on this one. So it's uh, not a shock that California is having these kinds of of growing pains. More than 200 attempts to reconfigure California's boundaries have been attempted over the course of its history. And there's also, in addition to those things, a Cal exit proposal, which continues to be bandied about for the ballot in 2020. And that's where California, because it is a huge economy, bigger than a lot of our trading partners on its own, separate and apart from the United States, that they want to make California its own country. Now, I got to say, the only reason that I would want to keep California in America as a part of our union is because it's the coastline. So it represents 
the coast. It completes the, the boundaries of our nation. You have the East Coast and the West Coast, and those without any other country to the left or the right of us present a powerful uh, form of, of protection for us. You have to approach our country not from inland. In, in other words, you're already on the land that we share, and then you just come across some line, imaginary line or border, or some fence that we, we would erect. You can stage operations from that coast. All of those things can happen if you actually have that as a country that we don't control. And I actually think that's what would happen. If California were to secede, China would move to take over California um, through, they try to do it peacefully with a show of force and annexation. And the United States government would be forced to protect California and reabsorb it back into the United States. Uh, California has an, a National Guard, but they don't have a standing army and the attendant resources that they would need to defend themselves against, uh, you know, China. And they would love, they would adore to have China, a piece of it, on our continent where they could literally just cross over into America if they wanted to. That is why, and it's the only reason why, because I think California is largely a lost cause as, as it pertains to politics and that just the, the overall thought of the state, it bends to lawlessness and is utterly unaccountable for the horrible policy failures that currently govern the entire state. Um, so the piece goes on to discuss um, the six seats that they would have as opposed to the current 100-member Senate. They'd have a 104-member chamber. It would dilute the power of the other states and increase the power of what used to be a single state because the six senators could band together on various issues. Um, and they also consulted with Vikram Amar, a law professor who has written extensively about Draper's plans, who pointed out last fall that the shift in California's votes in the Electoral College, which have been awarded for a quarter century to Democratic nominees, would be split between three states. And one of those states, based on past election results, would be won by a Republican. So while the Senate situation would be detrimental to Republicans, the presidential outlook would be greatly improved because there's a huge chunk of California that's extremely conservative and they vote that way. So Amar was writing about this and he said that he feels Democrats would be very reluctant to risk uh, supporting the proposal in Congress because of that very, the, the electoral college mix. The other issue is that even though it is, lawful to raise this as a ballot initiative, it actually would rise to the need possibly of making a revision to the California constitution. And that can only be instigated by the legislature or by a formal constitutional convention. Revisions are generally seen in the courts as the most substantial kinds of changes to, to a government. So, uh, you know, what could be more important to, to a state's government than the geographic boundaries and, um, you know, the, it, it would represent a material change to the way that people in California live. He also brings up the issue of people who are currently California state residents enjoying in-state tuition at the University of California system, the system of, of universities. If the state was split into three and you didn't live in a part of it that contained a part of the university system, then you would be an out-of-state student unless there was a provision for that included in all of the different details that would have to be ironed out. 
So it's a fascinating proposal. I think this is interesting because this is the closest they've gotten to ever bringing it um, to fruition. And so I'm interested in seeing how it goes. But I, I also, I feel completely confident that it's not going to actually happen, mainly because the Democrats will oppose it vehemently because they don't want their electoral college win of California diluted. It's their path to the presidency every single time they win. It goes through California. What they hope to do is to have enough people move from California and Illinois who vote liberally but want lower taxes to move to the state of Texas so they can turn it blue. Remains to be seen if that will actually work for them. Uh, We're at the end of this hour. In hour two, I'm really excited to get the opportunity to interview Arno Michaelis, Michaelis, former white supremacist and co-author of the book, The Gift of Our Wounds. That is going to be a fantastic interview. Can't wait to get into that. And I have a little bit of audio for you of the video that was created by apparently the State Department commissioned the video that was shown to Kim Jong-un and he was given a copy to take home with him. And I kind of thought marketing wise, I said it, I'll say it again. It was brilliant. It was brilliant to give him something to take home so that instead of him just remembering getting a tour of the president's limousine or remembering looking out over the balcony and talking about the beaches there in Singapore, that he was able to take something home with him that he could not only look at and show his wife and children, but that he could present to others in leadership who you know support his regime, people who help him make decisions so that they could look at the pros and the cons of what's being proposed. Brilliant. And then, and more proof that the president was actually prepared for the meeting. So, uh, We have all of that and more for you. Right now, you have important news and information from onenewsnow.com coming at you in just a couple of seconds. Keep it here for more Stacey on the Right after this.